Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. For this episode, critically acclaimed author Casey Barrett sits down across the interrogation room just to clear a few things up about his writing and his craft. Casey's a crime novelist, Canadian Olympian, and the co-founder and co-CEO of Imagine Swimming, New York City's largest learn-to-swim school. His work on NBC's Olympic Games broadcast has won three Emmy Awards and one Peabody, and he's the author of a popular swimming blog, Cap and Goggles, and regularly contributed to the Village Voice. You can also find his work in GQ, Rolling Stone, and Swimming World magazines. Most relevant to this audience and these proceedings today, Casey writes the Seamus-inspired Duck Darley series, which is set in present-day Manhattan. It features protagonist Lawrence Darley Jr., a fallen rich kid, a convicted felon turned unlicensed PI who's the son of a Madoff-esque fraudster father. Darley is described as complicated, conflicted, and less than sober. The latest release in that series is entitled The Tower of Songs, and it just released three days ago on August 27. Welcome to Writers on the Beat, Casey. Thanks for making time this morning. Thanks so much for having me. It's good to be here. Now, I'm reading Tower of Songs now, and and your combination of prose and storytelling grabbed me right from page one, man. I'm I'm really, really impressed with the opening of this book. Thank you so much. It's a blast to write. (laughs) Well, I I, I really appreciate uh, uh, writing like this. You know, books like this are the reason people read. Um, For readers new to you in your series, what what do you want them to know about this title and uh, your Duck Darley series? Well, this title is, um, I, I guess, for fans of Leonard Cohen, it's a, it's a nod to uh, one of my favorite songs and albums uh, by Leonard Cohen. But to me, it felt uh, it's, it really suited the, uh, the, the story of, of this book. This, uh, uh, it's set and it features the, quote, super talls of Manhattan, mm-hmm. um, which evidently Skyscraper wasn't enough. So they had to coin <laughs> a new made-up adjective for these, these massive um, thousands of uh, plus feet uh, residential buildings that are called coined billionaires row. And to me, they are just the, the biggest examples of corruption and money laundering and all that's awful about the corporate takeover of Manhattan. I think they define all, all of it in such a, a really pronounced way, almost as a giant middle finger to, uh, to the city. And, um, and that was really irresistible to me to, uh, to center a, a Michigan crime around the abduction of a hedge fund billionaire who happens to live at the very top of the highest one. So in almost in a very literal way, he looks down on all of humanity um, and he gets taken out the front door in full view of security cameras. And um, that, that is where the, uh, the mystery uh, begins. Now, I also understand you have an article that popped up, I think just this morning on, uh, on crime reads uh, that reminds me of Albert Camus quote that, uh, fiction is the lie through which we tell the truth. Yeah, th- I mean, th- thank you for uh, for for mentioning that on Crimeries, which is I, I, I would have to say is my my favorite, certainly most visited site. I just I think LitHub, uh, it's like an offshoot of LitHub.com and Crimeries is just mm-hmm. it's just such a fantastic um, curated site. Um, but they were very kind to um, to post an essay I did. Um, and it went up this morning, and it's it's titled "Reckoning with Addiction in Crime Fiction." And um, I make the argument that there's probably no better place to to really get at um, you know the, the emotional truths of addiction 
um, I've a really pronounced distaste for the addiction memoir that mm-hmm. as a whole genre, just because I find it quite dishonest and self-serving, um, my own opinion. But um, I, on the flip side, I have some of my absolute all-time favorite series um, deal with that kind of ongoing struggle of sobriety, whether it's uh, James Lee Burke's Dave Robichaud, um, Lawrence Block's Matt Scudder. Those are probably the two that really, because they're, they're long-running series and they really grapple with the struggle to stay sober. Um, which I think are just, it's, it's more honest and, and better. Um, it's just more well done in all ways to me than anything that, that I've ever seen in nonfiction. So um, I'm inspired by that. And my own character, Duck, is, uh, is someone that had quite a severe drinking problem in the first two books. And the third book sees him on the, quote, weed cure. So he's, he's not drinking <laughs> yes. anymore. He's not yeah. doing anything but, uh, but weed. And that's, it's something that I've seen around um, with some close friends and acquaintances that uh, it seems to be be working, that they've they've managed to be clean. And I know that's probably not the term clean would be acceptable in right. the A circle, but they're they're clean and and living a you know a much better um, you know more clear-headed life. But they they have that one vice, and that's more power to them. I think that's that's great. Yeah, and you know, on the from a I guess a, a research standpoint, right? I think that there's been so much information come out in the last uh, last few years about you know potential roots of addiction and a lot of a lot of the things that I I think end up being you know, so far outside of our control, it, it, it has uh, made me much more sympathetic to people who are, are, are struggling through that. I, is, yeah, I mean, I, uh, so, I, I, I could, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't agree more, but yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, this is, this is the trouble of not doing video broadcasts right here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, there's no body language cue. You, uh, you know, you're, you're ready. To do um, but in my in my work as a as a cop, I've always had tremendous sympathy for for people who struggle with with real true addiction, and especially you know once folks descend to the you know just really incredibly heavy drinking, uh, heroin, methamphetamine, all those things, it doesn't just destroy their life; uh, it destroys the lives of everyone around them, everyone who loves and cares about them, and and it really devastates um, society. And you know, I, I think that um, you know it anything, uh, asterisk, right. Anything that, um, will help these folks overcome what is probably a, a, a biological route and live a productive, happy, healthy life. I, I think is, is, should be on the table in fair game. Yeah. I mean, that's, and it's, and it's really refreshing to, um, you know, from, to, to hear that from a law, law enforcement perspective is, is, is ex- is great to hear. Um, There's something in the New York Times, I think, two weeks ago, about how Seattle is is um, emerging as like this, you know, a, a new, more um, compassionate and empathetic way of addicts, and not as criminals, but as you know, mental health crisis. And um, it was it sounds largely spurned by the attorney general there that uh, had a sister who went through severe addiction. It changed his entire mindset, where he, as you just described, it takes out an entire family and. A lot of it is biological, and unfortunately, the you know it's often seen as, and it and it is deeply, deeply selfish, and it's seen that way. And but a lot of times, it goes beyond just you know the the selfish choice. It, mm-hmm. It's something that is that's that's rooted in in ways beyond things that people can control. Um, you know, with 
you know, self-discipline or, or any of the other things or stop being selfish or any, any of those things that, uh, that we'd like to say, like, you know, just clean up your act. It's not so easy for, uh, for certain folks. So, um, again, that's something that I, I think you, because crime fiction gets into such extremes of human behavior, mm-hmm. it just seems like such a perfect place to explore it because addiction is an absolute extreme. And, you know, particularly if you're talking about detectives, whether they're, um, official law enforcement or unlicensed is my, uh, Yes. <laughs> uh, my character is, um, you know, regardless, you're, you know, you're also, there's a big element of self-medicating. You know, if you're, if you're exposed to really extreme situations, murders, deaths, rapes, horrible, horrible stuff, you know, there's, it's, it's a logical step, um, step away to be self-medicating after you, you're exposed to that stuff. So the, a lot of it is nature and a lot of it is, is nurture where you're, you're, you're medicating yourself. Yeah. And, you know, I have a, a even you know, with my sympathy, I also have a, a really complicated view on on the criminal justice system. Uh, you know, uh, uh, and the the role that that plays in in addiction and recovery. Is it you know from, I, I guess, an anecdotal you know realistic standpoint or personal experience standpoint? I guess the the addicts that that I've known personally that I've engaged with at at work, um, you know, almost none of them really get the true help they need until they hit rock bottom. And unfortunately those court orders become a, a big part of that rock bottom and driving that or accelerating yeah. that trip down. Yeah. And, you know, as terrible as it is, it's a necessary evil, I guess. And I, I don't have an answer to it, but I, it's uh it's also complicated and we can certainly deal with it much more compassionately than we have historically. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's unfortunately it goes back to a, a single phrase to me where the war on, on drugs, it, it, it was, it's, the war is perhaps the worst word to to have been used. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, they, oh, the war on drugs failed, it lost everything. It, it was never, it never should have been called a war. It's not like, that's not, that phrasing alone, I think, did such a disservice to not just the, the addicted side mm-hmm. and the, the people that were prosecuted, but also to the side of law enforcement where, that was just not the way to phrase it, and it really made things much more difficult. It didn't. It didn't make things. Uh, it didn't focus things. I think as maybe that phrase was intended. Now, and on kind of a related note, I guess the I I think uh, Duck is the first protagonist I've read who vapes, and I don't know if that's just a result of, <laughs> of your, your age bracket, but it immediately feels like you're kind of chasing a a little bit younger audience than the typical hard-boiled mystery and thriller writer. I, I wonder if that was deliberate or if that's just, you know, your experience and, and your paradigm making its way into the pages. It's, it's more the, the latter. It's, I was just trying to, to capture um, what I thought would be an accurate uh, way for someone that was really making a, a, an honest effort to, to clean up his act and, um, you know, and, and, be honest that he's not someone that's going to go through life with no vices and just, you know, maybe mm-hmm. do yoga and totally clear. It's just not, <laughs> some people yeah. are not wired that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was honest enough with himself to know that, you know, the, I'm a little bit uh, sensitive to like the, the cliche of the, the hard drinking private eye, because mm-hmm. it is, it's a cliche for a reason because it's fun. And I like reading that, yeah. that cliche character a lot. Um, but there, there's a point where, you know, is the, the proverbial bottle of, of whiskey in the drawer, the, you, know, you take a slug and then you go out and solve the case. Well, if you have a bottle of whiskey in your office desk drawer, that's, that's probably indicative of a problem. <laughs> it's, yes. not, yeah. it's not something that's like cool that where, okay, now you load your gun and you go out and 
solve the case. If you're <laughs> fishing out hard hard brown alcohol from your office desk drawer, that's yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that's not a casual drinker. <laughs> no, and probably out of a plastic bottle served warm, not in a decanter over rocks, right? Yeah. No, and you're not talking about uh, a fine, uh, <laughs> great age bourbon. You're, you're <laughs> talking about the cheap stuff. Now, what what uh, inspired you to specifically create Duck, and how did you craft such a complicated life for him, from his martial arts to his addiction and, and being a the fallen angel of this, uh, I guess, recent uh, Manhattan socialite? Well, I I was I was so I don't know what. Um, what captured the, the Bernie Madoff case um, in my imagination so much is a, a little bit like right now, I cannot stop reading about this store Jeffrey Epstein mess. Like yes. there's just these cases that like, I just fall so far down the rabbit hole and read every possible thread I can find on them. And mm-hmm. before the Epstein um, case, you know, years ago it was the, the Bernie Madoff case. It wasn't sexual in nature, but it, it captured that same just extreme perversion of wealth and entitlement and everything. Yeah. Um, and, from from reading that so obsessively and knowing what happened to his family and his sons, which is couldn't be more tragic, I, that kind of was the spark for the character to me. That you know, you know, what is the collateral damage for a son, and what what happens if that is you know emerges at at a kid's really formative years where he has some promise, um, you know, things are really looking like they're all falling into place, and then around age thirteen, it, not only everything goes away, but your name's you're a disgrace. Like you're basically forced into exile. Um, and that, that to me is just, it, I, I love exploring that as a character. I think it's, it's a really kind of a, it, it just, there's a lot of depth to it. Yeah. And especially in, in American society, right. Where, you know, unlike the, the old European world, like we're not supposed to be bound to the fate of our fathers, but we certainly are in a lot of ways. No, we, you know? we, we, we certainly are. I mean, there's no, there's no getting around that. I mean, for for better and for worse. And part of that was, um, you know, when I was making this character, I looked at it, uh, I've been immensely lucky to have grown up in a, in a really stable uh, family with, with great parents. And, you know, I crafting a character, you kind of look at it like, all right, what if you take all that luck and you realize after a certain age, maybe past, once you get past 40 or so that so much of your life you think is like, Oh, it's such hard work. It's such discipline. <laughs> I earned this and that. And it's like, that's, you're yeah. just so, I've been congratulating myself for such nonsense for so long because so much, much is just like pure luck and good fortune. <laughs> and, yeah, and I mean, got to get to a point of admitting that. Yeah, and, and so many other people contributed to prop you up to put you in the place to make all of that uh, opportunity mean something at just the right time, right? Exactly. Yeah, and and that's you know, if I I, I look at a lot of the characters, not just Duck, but you know. It's, remove all that, remove all that good fortune, remove all that good timing. And that's where you get more complicated characters and more tortured characters and people that are not going to react in rational ways. And that's a lot of where a lot of violence comes in. That's where a lot of crime uh, emerges from, from really just bad luck for, for a lot of people. What kind of research did you have to do for this then coming from a, you know, a, a decent, reasonable upbringing that, that you're happy to be from? Did you have to dive into a lot of um, addiction centers? Did you meet with a lot of the folks going through this? Did you just dive into Raymond Chandler and read everything the guy wrote? <laughs> um, I mean, certainly I've read reams of fiction about addiction. Um, you know, I don't want to get into any um, personal um, you know, with friendships and stuff, but I definitely have seen up close um, yeah. uh, some of that. And, you know, just living in, in New York City for the last 21 years, um, you're 
one thing I love about the city, and there's a lot of things I don't love about the city, um, which I guess makes you a New Yorker. You, you hate it in equal measure. Um, but one thing I do love is you're, you're so up close, to, no matter what part, the, where you come from, you're so up close to, to everything. Like you're, you know, when, when the blackout night happened years ago, I remember not, not having any idea, but there was a methadone clinic like next door to, or like maybe a hundred feet away from our apartment. And suddenly I noticed a line of junkies all lined up down the block, scratching their arms because the, you know, it was blackout. There was no electricity. They couldn't get their fix. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, you just have, have no idea. My the apartment building I live in now before it turned into condos was a addiction center for many decades. And there's stories about, you know, people, the junkies calling down from the park next door, calling up to their friends that were in, in there, asking them to toss down a, a methadone. And they would be t- throwing it out windows into the park to their friends. <laughs> so it's, you know, those kind of New York stories are, you don't have to look far. I mean, that's, a, that's yeah. on my block, in my building, this stuff has happened. So um, it, is, it is a really inspiring place to live in that sense. And who was your first writing mentor and how did that relationship come about? Um, I mean, it's, I, I feel almost like a cliche to say this because um, I think infinitely number, <laughs> number of young men would say the same, but it's, uh, it was Hunter Thompson when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. And I had a, a friend, my, when I was 17, I was um, in boarding school in Jacksonville, Florida, and I had a friend come in and sort of disgustedly tossed your loathing in Las Vegas onto my bed. And he said, you're, you're, you're so twisted. You'll probably find all of this funny. And he, <laughs> he threw it on my mattress and, and, and he was, he was one of my closest friends, but definitely one of um, the most straight laced friends I had. Yeah. And uh, I mean, he, he was, he was right. He knew me and I proceeded to pick it up and I was crying laughing by like page three. And um, that kind of, you know, do me forever. I guess. <laughs> But yeah, I was 17 in boarding school and that being tossed to my bed, it was, uh, that, that, that was the hook. Do, do you remember the first time that you realized that you actually could write and that someone other than your parents wanted to read what you had to say? Um, yeah, I, I actually, I think I, I, I have a pretty clear sense of my, sometime in college I started doing what, I guess they were short stories, but they were mostly true. They were just kind of, kind of writing 4,000 words about bad behavior or, mm-hmm. you know, certain nights. Um, and it, it, I just that thrill of getting a chuckle from your friends and, and having it passed around. And this is before this, I, I was kind of, I was finishing school in the late nineties where it was before email it was just as like, you know, you'd have a dial up connection to AOL that would yes. eventually get you on after a few minutes. So yeah. things, things then, and it's weird. My, my degrees in print journalism, which is like the least prescient thing ever to have a degree in that in 1998. But it was, you know, you're passing around a short story in paper form. And, uh, and, and there was really a sense of like, it wasn't just hitting forward or texting it to people. There was a, uh, a more, there was more intimacy to it, I guess then. So yeah, yeah that was kind of the first, uh, the first jolt I got with it. Yeah. I, uh, I, we would have entered college at almost the exact same moment. And uh, I didn't have an email account until my freshman year of college. And I remember thinking, man, this thing's a nuisance. Nobody's ever going to use this. Oh, to- to- I, totally. I didn't have I, my first job. I didn't have a computer on the desk. There was like an, uh, a communal and I was a fact checker and there was a communal <laughs> internet where you had to go sign up. <laughs> like, I mean, they were, I think the magazine was a little bit behind the times, but like still in 1998, yeah. like you had to queue up to get the dial up internet to check your facts. <laughs> Now, in what genre would you place this Duck Darley series, and what books or authors would you like to see it shelved between? Um, 
I mean, it's it's pretty squarely in crime fiction and hard-boiled noir. Um, I, I I don't necessarily um, classify myself that way, but that's the way it's uh, it's been classified. But that's fine with me because a lot of my favorite writers are are classified the same way. I mean, my I'm in my little study right now, and I have my books, I think, very ambitiously um, wedged between a big stack of uh, James Lee Burke, Ken Bruin, um, Charles Wilford, um, James Crumley, and James Salas. So those, those, and then above that are John D. McDonald and Ross McDonald. So um, I don't know, maybe I'm hoping for some uh, osmosis from, <laughs> from writers that I think are like the geniuses of the, uh, the genre to maybe I'm hoping some of that's rub off on me, but yeah, uh, James Lee Burke, Kim Bruin, yeah, J- James Solace, New Orleans uh, writer is just, he's, he's an incredible poet too. And he's more experimental and to me doesn't get nearly the, the credit and accolades he deserves, but yeah, the, those are my favorites. And, and James Crumley, I've, I'm looking at every single thing he's published on my shelf right now. Now, I, I think I probably know the answer in my heart based on your reading list, but I uh, wanted to get your point of view on point of view and whether or not you deliberately write in, in, in well, first person. Yeah, I think, I mean, all the authors are just rattled off are, for the most part, they're writing in, in first person past tense. And that's what I've been writing in. And I love the immediacy of it, of just, you know, really and, and also I love how it narrows things where you don't have to be this, um, this all knowing expert. Um, and for whatever reason, I don't read a lot of, um, fiction written from the omniscient third person. Um, mm-hmm. but I, I do like, I'm definitely longing to do a little bit more, um, POVs and, and having different perspectives. Um, cause I think you can narrow yourself, even if it's unintentional by just sticking solely to that first person. But, um, there's nothing to replace that immediacy where you're, you're getting something, somebody's um, just straight, limited, honest perceptions at all times. A recurring theme on this podcast is that it only takes about a decade of consistent, nonstop blood, sweat, and tears to become an overnight success. And I wonder what your journey has been like from aspiring writer and, you know, uh, passing the, the paper on your friends in college to becoming an acclaimed and celebrated author at this point. Well, I, I wouldn't say I'm acclaimed or celebrated just yet. <laughs> I have those ambitions, though. But, um, I mean, I, I guess the uh, the easy answer is the, uh, the just looking at the facts. I mean, at age 23, I'd pretty much decided, like, my number one career ambition was to write fiction. I knew that wasn't going to be my financial. Uh, I was fortunately wise enough to see it wasn't going to be the best financial path, so I had to figure other stuff out for that. But my career ambition from age 23 was really to be writing fiction. I didn't publish my first novel till age 42. So that's 20 years. <laughs> yes. So, um, so yeah, it was, I mean, the whole 10,000 hour rule does apply. It, it's no one wants to uh, admit it when you're early on in the low thousands of hours, but it, it applies in our, whatever you're doing. Yes. Yeah. And the more that I look back on my writing, the more I wish I had uh, put in a few more hours before that first one came out, you know? Really? I, I, I was, was hoping that I didn't, didn't need it. Um, but evidently I, I certainly did 10,000 and more. Yeah. I, I'm very tempted to go back and just do a, a minor editing on, on some of the, the first, the first works that I got published. Um, and I, I keep telling myself, I'm not gonna, not gonna give into the temptation because I, I still really, I'm still really proud of them. I still really enjoy those books, but I'm like, you know, it's just, I think that writing is never finished. It's only ever abandoned. Um, yeah. And yeah. it's just that temptation. Yeah, and I, I don't know about you, but I used to, uh, 
idolize and envy in, in equal measure the um, the writers, not necessarily just in crime fiction, um, but the writers that had that first like incredible breakout, transcendent first book in their twenties. Like mm-hmm. two of my favorites were James Mac, or, uh, uh, Jay McInerney and Brett Easton Ellis, and I mean they, they were they were kind of legitimately were overnight successes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, maybe it's it's not great for a long term career to have that and. Maybe they they regret breaking out so soon now that they're of an age where they can look back and and see how their career may or may not have gone. Um, but I don't know. It's such there's there's a lot of dangerous cliches in um in, in publishing from like the romance of the hard drinking writer or the the big breakout wonderkin, and none of them are really healthy at all. I mean, I, at various points I've bought into all of them, but none of them are very healthy to uh, to emulate. But no, yeah, you, you wonder about those those guys. Yeah, and I, I'm actually really grateful that I didn't. Um, get anything published until I was, um, well, I guess about 40. Um, if someone had published anything that I wrote in my twenties, uh, it would have been absolute shit. <laughs> it would have been oh, yeah. just, no, 100% just for me too. <laughs> unbelievably arrogant. And it's, you know, uh, it's just ideological. Like it was just, man, um, it's amazing how uh, a few decades makes a whole lot of difference in the seasoning. I don't know about you, but for for me, what it wouldn't wouldn't have just been awful. It would have been so blatantly trying to imitate others that I yeah. really admired. The first time I I think I finished a manuscript it was like twenty nine, a like novel length manuscript, which will never see the light of day. But the whole time I was writing it, I had at my elbow Brady Snell's uh, Lesson Zero and Joan Didion's um, Played as It Lays, and it was it's so obvious in retrospect. I was just trying to to ape them. I was just trying to sound ex- exactly like they did and just try to sound just like that, that nihilistic cool voice that I loved hearing in my head. And I mean, I'd, I'd be so embarrassed if that ever, <laughs> if that ever was, was seen by people. Cause it was just, it was just me trying to straight up uh, pretend to be them. Yeah. Uh, which I guess is where you have to start and you have to start emulating somebody. Um, but yeah, that stuff should not, uh, not, not come down to just a, a related tangent um before the village voice folded which was heartbreaking to to both my, my wife and i because we were both contributors to there um but just before it folded i i did a piece on um on walt whitman's uh like stuff that has been unearthed in a really neat like scholarly way that he had he had published tons of fiction and journalism before he became the overnight success with leaves of grass which wasn't even overnight there either mm-hmm. but um you know he's been dead 200 years and i think he would be sort of horrified that stuff is coming out that he never, he, he put a pen name on it. He didn't even want people to know he did it when he was alive. Yeah. And now it's coming out and not just coming out, but like being republished and being on page one of the New York times. And like the books are on the shelves in every bookstore. And I think he'd be sort of horrified <laughs> that, <laughs> that stuff's there. Cause I mean, even, even back then he didn't want people to know he wrote it. Yeah, there, there but he's Walt be, Whitman, so everything he ever penned has to come out. Yes, yeah, and and it and it all has to be fantastic and held to that same standard. And you know, obviously, he disagreed. Yeah, it's it's not fair to any any you know everyone is trying to improve, and mm-hmm. you, know, you know you get noticed. I think it's more or less in a fair way, and in, in whatever way, like creative stuff is so subjective. But whatever way it can be fair, it does tend to be sort of fair in terms of where artists get noticed. Yes. Um, and yeah, I mean, Whitman knew that he wasn't delivering great stuff, so he put somebody else's name on it and, uh, and wrote as much as he could. And when he was ready, he wrote Leaves of Grass. Yeah, and then, hence, overnight success. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Relatively exactly. So. Yeah, exactly. Don't, don't worry about 
you know, I, I did my million practice words under something else. Don't, don't worry about that. Just read this one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just read this one. It will stand the test of time. It'll yes. still be reading in 200 years. <laughs> the other stuff, don't worry about. <laughs> yeah. Uh, tangent back to you, your personal life and experiences and accomplishments. If, if someone among the audience wanted to write a series or have a feature protagonist who is an Olympic athlete, I wonder what you would want them to most get right about that character and what they could do to, to make it a fully three-dimensional and, and, and diverse, relatable uh, character. That's a, a neat, neat question. I would say right off the top of my head, it would be the, um, the sadness and the mental health issues that come after, um, which I, you know, having spent a lot of time working for NBC's coverage of the Olympics, um, that's something that just, it's not touched. And I sometimes refer to my time there as having mm-hmm. been like an inspiration salesman where you're just, you're just selling the inspiration of the Olympics and the, the journey and the discipline, and the hard work and the, you know, and that's, that's all true in a, in a way, mm-hmm. but um, you know, I don't think you're going to find a, a more conflicted, sadder, microcosm of mental health issues than the Olympic village. I mean, it's, it's just a mess. Like, and that, that's my memory of it. I mean, I'm not speaking for everyone, but that's what I saw. And that's why I saw a lot of athletes where the minute you touch the wall or cross the line for your race and you achieved like what you're, you had always set out to do, like the, the vacuum that comes in after you, I don't, no one's expecting and no one wants to talk about it beforehand because then you're already looking beyond what you're training for. Um, So the vacuum just kind of sucks people in and, the result of it, it is a lot of bad behavior, a lot of mm-hmm. ugly mental health stuff. I mean, the result of it is what you saw in, in Rio with, with Ryan Lochte and yeah. his nonsense of and creating like a, a global world event by him just being a lost idiot, you know, just being lost. And, and there are so many of them are lost. He, it was, it, it was, he's the most high profile guy. So he really got taken down hard, but he wasn't the only one. No. Well, and you know, right after, well, I shouldn't say right after because, you know, it, 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 you know, my, in my middle ages, time uh, has less value than it used to. So six months is the same as six years sometimes, but uh, (laughs) I I, I guess it's fair to say a a few years ago um, after uh, Michael Phelps came out and and sort of working with the, the ASU swim team out here, a series of ads um, started running uh, at least here locally and may have been, you know, at least national ad campaign about, mental health and uh, dealing with, uh, with depression and anxiety. And I was really pleased to see someone of, um, you know, your and Michael Phelps stature um, addressing these issues publicly. So it's, I think it, it affects yeah. far more people than, than we realize. And um, there is a, a serious aftermath to, to, you know, those victories. There is a downfall. It's uh, uh, really unfortunate. It's, it's, and it's massive. I mean, those, those ads uh, with Michael and I were on, I think, like every bus stop in New York for, uh, for a while last year. And okay. I mean, of, of all the, I mean, he's the greatest Olympian ever. Like he's achieved everything and then some, but I mean, I, in my head, I feel like his, his biggest um, achievement in terms of like cha- maybe changing the focus of the sport is, is really being a face of the, the mental health stuff. I think it's to be commended so much because it's, I mean, he saw it probably more than anyone because he was so under the spot. I mean, the fact that he got he got thrown onto the the rocks from smoking a bong and yes. his two DUIs, like these. Yes, those are. I'm not not excusing that those behaviors, but like yeah, he's he's not he's not getting arrested for for hitting anybody or, or assault or anything horrible. Like he's 
Yeah, he's he grown up in a in a way that guys in their twenties screw up, and he really just got thrown against the uh, the rocks in a really ugly way back then. Yeah, he wasn't uh, you know part of an organized crime ring. <laughs> he, he wasn't yeah. you know, robbing banks or pushing old ladies into the street. He wasn't seen on a security camera punching any uh, any, yeah. you know, any any women the way yeah. you know too many uh, oh players God. in the NFL have. Yeah, I mean, he, yeah. He was he was screwed up in in a way that was so over publicized to my head, but I'm sure contributed to his mental health stuff. So, oh yeah. I mean, on a on a, on a side note to uh, to that, there's and and within like the swimming world, people know about it, but um, there's a glaring example from a couple of years ago where um, a relay of four. Um, American women that all um, they they won the gold medal at the World Championships and subsequently all four of them have had massive and and publicized mental health issues depression anxiety eating disorders everything and it was like this this microcosm all four on a world champion relay and it's it's like no one gets out alive in a way yeah we're going far afield from crime fiction but it does feel like no one gets out alive well, and that brings me actually to what may be the most important question of this entire interview, Casey. Where do you stand on the Australian swimming method? <laughs> um, I love it. I mean, talking about uh, imitating uh, people that have figured out, you can do worse than imitate the Australians when it comes to swimming. <laughs> yes. Yeah. My, my wife worked at a, a Hubbard swim school here in, here in, uh, I'm, I'm very close friends with them. Okay. Very, very yeah. close. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And so when I, I yeah, Bob, Bob and Kathy are, I'll, yep. I'll mention, uh, that, that I'm on because, uh, yeah, we, every time they're in New York, we see them and they, they're big mentors to, uh, to imagine swimming. That's for sure. Yeah. They're such wonderful people. They are. They're like, uh, they're like total role models in too many ways to count. Now, what are you passionate about these days beyond writing that gets you out of bed and moving with a purpose? Obviously swimming. So I'll take that one off the table. No swimming, no writing. What else is your life about? My daughter, <laughs> my daughter, <and> my <laughs> wife. <laughs> She's uh, my, my business partner. And I both have kids the same age. My daughter's uh, going to be nine and his son just turned nine. And um, I can't say we're trying to guide them away from competitive swimming, but yeah. we're not exactly encouraging them to go down that uh the path of insanity and yeah. neither of us are too keen on uh, spending the next 10 years sitting in the stands at endless swim meets. So, yeah. um, so I just joined the synchronized swimming team, um, which seems a lot more sane relatively speaking and certainly in terms of the, the, the meat commitment. Um, yes. And then my business partner's son, my, my godson has become a total skater and surfer and is Perfect. actively rejected yeah. all organized sport. And it wants nothing to do with any organized sport, but is an amazing athlete. Yeah, that's incredible. Anything that, that you can do to not have to uh, sit in the stands for four hours to watch uh, 18 and a half seconds of action. That's uh, oh, four hours. My poor sisters and my parents probably spent like 13 hours and then waiting for me to compete. And then I inevitably throw my goggles and be angry and pissed off and with, <laughs> have my pouty in the car on the way home. It's like, <laughs> like how much more ungrateful can you get? <laughs> Thanks for the great Saturday, Casey. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and it's nice to see it all paid off with you just sulking in the back on the way home. Great. <laughs> what would you most like readers to take away from your writing? Um, I, I would hope that they would um, see the, the emotional truths in it. Um, we, we get, my wife and I say we, we both are a little bit sensitive when, uh, when people like at, at school, parents at school have read the books and then kind of roll their eyes and say, Oh, what, how, how true is that? Because the, 
the, yeah. the narrator is a is a total addict, and his partner is a dominatrix. So that <laughs> embarrasses my wife to no end. And uh, and it, no, it's not remotely true. But I think the the emotional truths of it. I think that there's there's that line again of you know yes. if you want to talk about addiction, you, it's better in fiction. If you want to talk about uh, you know alter, alternative sex, is probably better in fiction too because no one wants to cop to uh, objective uh, facts. Yes. Now, I, I think we've already, throughout the interview, covered uh, quite a bit of your your personal reading list, personal authors, and, and uh, the folks that you that you enjoy reading. So I'll just jump to this very last question that I ask of all the authors who come on the show. And God forbid it should come to pass, Casey, but if you were to wake up tomorrow and find yourself murdered, what fictional investigator, assassin, or revenge artist would you want working your case? Oh, nice. Um... I'm, it's probably a bad choice, but I'm picking Jack Taylor, uh, <laughs> Ken Burns, Jack, Jack Taylor. I mean, cause at least I know he won't stop. Yes. Like he'll, it'll, it'll be a mess and he'll do everything wrong and he won't be an expert, but I know he won't stop. So, um, yeah, I'll go with Jack a, Taylor. A dog with a bone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> at least he'll keep going. Yes. Uh, where can readers connect with you, find your works, maybe get updates on upcoming releases and, uh, and, uh, follow a newsletter or something like that. So my, my site is CaseyBarrettBooks.com. Um, I'm very active on Instagram, which is also CaseyBarrettBooks. I'm not active, even though it's set up. Uh, I technically have a Facebook and Twitter page, but I can't remember the last time I was on them. So my, my one source of social media is Instagram, um, and my site I'm, I'm very active on, and I'm, oh, I always love replying personally to every, any email and every email I get to. Well, I greatly appreciate your time and sharing your, your expertise and your thoughts on all this, Casey. It's been a pleasure having you. It's been a blast. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been Olympian and acclaimed crime author Casey Barrett. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.